Let's pray. Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Overrule and overwhelm. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would overrule and overwhelm Ethan's mouth and his words, and that you would overrule and overwhelm our ears and our hearing. We pray that that which Ethan speaks would be within your will and directly from your word, exalting Jesus. And that which we hear, you would use to change us, to transform us, to bring us into closer union with Christ and be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm not sure I know. There we go. I think we got We're good. It. We're good. Can you hear me now? Yep. All right. Thank you. So our gospel passage uh, this morning paints for us a divinely ordained vision of what humanity was created for. To love God and love one another. But to, to receive the, the good news of, of Jesus Christ today, we, we also have to hear that there is no health in us. See, Jesus meets us today in the words of Scripture with a diagnosis, a vision, a remedy, and the power to heal and give true life, meaning, and identity. So let's turn to the diagnosis in two parts. And first, we see it seems like our world is frantically running around begging and searching for meaning, value, and identity. Have you ever reflected on on the experience of buying something you really desire? Now, not something of practical value, but something that you think that will add meaning and identity and value to your life. Think about brand loyalty and identity. These days, an object doesn't just have practical value. It tells you and others who you are. I am an Apple computer guy, cool and techy, but not too nerdy. (laughs) I'm a Patagonia guy. I love some adventure and risk and lots of mountain climbing. These objects and brands become my identity. And what happens when I get the thing, get that new iPhone 10 or whatever? I mean, I have a moment of joy and, and excitement, and that feeling quickly fades away. And I realize that it's not going to make me happy. And I move on to the next thing, hoping it will fulfill me. Why do you think Apple needs to release new and cool things every you know, three to six months? It's because objects or people cannot fulfill our desire and our identity. We think that it will. We think it will give us a sense of identity and purpose, but it doesn't. It fails. But we always go back for more. What, whether that, whatever that thing, person, or experience is, we, will, we all imagine or sense that it will give us meaning, purpose, and identity. This desire, though, is so powerful that many people can spend their whole lives trying to acquire stuff and experiences and friends to, ex- to express and invent their sense of being and identity. For our culture, in many ways, you are what you own and what you buy. But as Christians, we're told that we have this desire for purpose, meaning and identity, for a reason. 
This desire points us to the fact that we were created for God. We were created to desire God above all else. This is what our gospel passage is getting at today. We were created for the love of God and for the love of others. Augustine, St. Augustine puts this point famously, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We were created to enjoy, love, and worship God. This is our purpose and identity. Life with God is the truly good life. Everything else in life is supposed to help us enjoy and love God. However, because of the power of sin in our lives, our desires are all mixed up. We look for an identity and, and meaning from objects and people rather than God. We make our jobs, our bodies, our families, our friends, the end goal and purpose of our lives. We make them our God. And God becomes one God among many gods, or we simply forget him. Now, Charles Simeon, uh, a famous Anglican evangelical theologian, offers a helpful illustration about how sin disorders our desires in our lives. For an arm to work well, the bones, ligaments, and muscles must be aligned and in their right place. In their right place. If, if it's broken or the bone is out of socket, it simply won't work. And this is exactly what sin does to our lives. Like a swift bat to the arm, it shatters everything. When we make idols out of, our, out of things and people, we are taking a bat to who God made us to be, and our desires become disordered. We make false gods out of things and people because we think they will give us purpose and identity or just help us escape the drudgery of life, but they only bring slavery and death. What can heal our broken and disordered desires? Only one. The love of God is what heals and reforms us, bringing our life back into order. God's love orders our love. So this is our first diagnosis. We make objects and people our source of meaning and identity, replacing God with created things. And our second problem is the fact that even if we know we were created for God and that God gives us his life and meaning, even if we know the law, we cannot reorder our desires on our own strength. And now we turn to the second problem. And to do this, let's turn our imagination to the, to the scene from the gospel reading. Now, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples a week or so before his death. He's at the center of the Jewish world, the temple, sitting with a group of people gathered around him. The sun beats down on us as we huddle under the, so we huddle, huddle under the portico to hear Jesus. And as Jesus is teaching, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, approach Jesus to test and discredit him. Now, who are you in this scene? Are you with Jesus as one of his disciples sitting close to him, drinking every, in every word he says? Perhaps you're a part of the curious crowd. Maybe you're one of the Pharisees. You see, being a Pharisee back then wouldn't have been so bad. I mean, be well-educated, a leader in the community, with a leisure to study the Torah and keep the Sabbath perfectly. But this the Pharisee in our story reveals something true of all of us. Even if we want, even if we know what we were created for, we cannot change ourselves. Knowledge of what is right does not mean we will or can do the right thing. Let me illustrate this point by 
uh, an imaginary exercise. Imagine that I am the Pharisee in this story. So I turn to Jesus with a flash of contempt and doubt in my eye and say, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now, according to the law that I, I know so well, Jesus is my neighbor. Even if I think he's a fraud, he is still my neighbor. My question, however, is obviously an attempt to test and trap Jesus. So, do I love my neighbor? No. I actually don't love Jesus as I love myself. And I just broke the second command, greatest commandment. I know the law and I just broke it. And if I only had eyes to see, I would realize that I don't love God either. Because he stands in front of me. And I am putting him to the test. And there it is. I, who am the keeper of the law, have broken both commandments. When I, and I would argue when we all identify with the Pharisee, we realize that even when we know the truth, we can't live it on our own strength. Now this confronts a key core belief in our culture. We think that if we know something or learn something, we can change ourselves. This is the logic of every self-help book out there. Knowledge is power. Jesus shows us that even when you know the truth, you can't set yourself free from sin. You need someone from outside of you to, set yourself, to be set free. Jesus' answer to the Pharisee tells us what humanity was created for, gives us a vision of the good life. And in the very fact, in the very act of articulating the two great commandments, Jesus reveals himself as their fulfillment. Jesus reveals himself as the remedy to our disordered love and pride. So let us turn to the vision that comes through in these simple phrases, the vision of the good life that Jesus reveals. Jesus summarizes the vision of, of, life, of, of the life God created us for in, in two simple statements. Love the Lord your God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. These statements are a vision of the life that God gives us when he saves us from sin and death. And it's important to realize uh, that Jesus is quoting these commandments from the Old Testament as summaries of the entire teaching of, of God in, through the law and the prophets. And when we go back to that context, we realize that both of these commandments are grounded in who God is and what God does to save Israel and humanity. With the first commandment, Jesus points us back to when God, right after God rescued Israel out of Egypt, and they stand on the brink of the promised land. The first commandment comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, when, where Moses reminds Israel who, who God is and that God saved them with a purpose and an identity. And that purpose and identity is that they are the children of God who he saved so they can live with God in the promised land. This is the verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, a little later in the passage, Moses recounts why Israel was saved from Egypt. God redeemed Israel from Egypt so that they can have true life and worship the Lord who saved them. He brought them out of death in Israel into life in the promised land. And God gave Israel life, meaning, and identity when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He moves them from being no people to the people of God. And this means that the great commandment, the commandment to love our God, is grounded in God's prior love. 
and rescue of humanity. We can love God only and ever because he loved us first from all eternity. It is God's eternal plan to love us with his infinite love. So God created all of humanity from the beginning for an eternal loving relationship with him. This, this relationship is the meaning, purpose, and end goal of human life. Again, St. Augustine describes this so well when he says, God is the fountain of our happiness and the goal of our desires. For our good is nothing else than to be united to God. God created us to have an eternal relationship with him and worship him as the body of Christ. We are beloved by God and that is our identity. So in this first commandment, we learn that God saves us because he loves us and he gives us our purpose and identity to love God and others and to be beloved by God. So God saved Israel from Egypt to give them life and purpose. And in the same way, Jesus Christ came to save the world from sin and death to give everyone their true identity and purpose. Our purpose and our identity are not something we have to earn or create. We don't have to buy things to give us a sense of value and meaning. God gives us himself as the absolute gift of love. And this is good news for us. Because God loves us, we can surrender our self-created identities and fall into the arms of Jesus who loves us from all eternity. We don't have to create our identity. We can receive it as a gift from God. I have meaning and identity because God loves me, not because I own a Mac computer. Amen. Brennan Manning tells this wonderful little story about uh, an old friend of his. Uh, they were walking on a, on a walk in, in the countryside. And during this walk, his friend was just exploding with, with joy and contentment. And Brennan, Brennan said, Seamus, you look very happy. Do you want to tell me why? Yes, lad, the old man said, tears washing down his face. You see, the father is very fond of me. Ah, yes, my father is so very fond of me. God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, one God, is infinitely fond of us. That is our identity and the source of our purpose. This brings us to Jesus' second description of the good life. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor? As we saw from our reading this morning, this commandment comes from the Old Testament passage we just read, and here it is again. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You should not render an unjust judgment. <clears throat> you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt upon yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now we should notice, like the commandments from Deuteronomy, how these commandments are also couched in who God is and what God does. 
God is holy, therefore we are called to be holy. God is the Lord of our lives and rescues us from death, therefore we love our neighbor. We love God and become holy because God is holy and loves us. And like the first great commandment, this commandment is grounded in God's prior love. Any love we show our neighbor is grounded in God's love of them and us. <clears throat> and also see how practical these commands are. Be just, don't judge, don't slander, don't hate, care for your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. But something inside us bulks at a list of do's and don'ts. Even when we catch a vision of the good life. Even though this is from God on high, the creator of our whole world. We don't, we kind of cringe. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to fix ourselves. We'll either want to say, out of our perfectionism and self-righteousness, I've kept this law my whole life. I'm a good person, really. And Jesus lovingly says, go, sell everything. Give it to the poor and follow me. Or the self-justifying hypocrite in all of us will jump and down and you, yeah, 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 but ha, who's my neighbor? Well, thankfully, Jesus answered this question by telling us the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you know this story, but let me summarize it. A Jewish man is walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho when he gets pummeled and robbed by bandits. Two Jewish religious leaders walk by him on the other side of the road. Uh, and then a Samaritan comes along. And a Samaritan is like a long-time enemy of the Jews. What does he do? He stops, helps him, takes him to a hotel, pays for his healing. And what does Jesus ask after he tells this story? Who of these three men proved to be the neighbor to the one who was robbed? His interlocutor responds, the one who showed him mercy. And the gist of this story, when it comes down to it, is that everyone we meet is our neighbor. No exceptions. Loving our neighbor means loving others without seeking an advantage. It means generously loving, expecting nothing in return. And you know what that describes? It describes Jesus himself. Loving our neighbor means loving Jesus, loving the way that Jesus loves Imagine what the world would like, would look like, what our lives would look like if we loved like that. But we only need to reflect a little bit on our political and our cultural situation and on our own hearts to realize how impossible it is to love our neighbor as ourselves on our own strength, grit, and merit. When we're honest, we only love those who are like us. And even then, we find reasons not to. <laughs> so, in these commandments, we're presented with a beautiful picture of what life should look like, what we were made to be. Because God loves us, we are, because God loves us, we are to love and worship God with our whole being and love our neighbors at, of God's love for us. But, God in his scriptures convicts us to, the, to our core we cannot love God and others on our own strength. We are too disordered by idolatry and pride. Our bones are too out of joint to do us any good. We are broken and enslaved by, to sin. We are like the Pharisee who knows the law and cannot keep it. Lord, have mercy. 
But thanks be to God, because Christ died for the ungodly. He died for his enemies. Yes, he even died for the Pharisees. He died for you and me. Jesus came to break and heal our idolatry and our pride through his humility and love. He lived the perfect human life, fulfilling both of these commandments. And then he took our life, our sin, our pride, our idolatry and brokenness into himself. And he gave us his perfect, beautiful life in return. Jesus killed our sin on the cross and gives us his life and his resurrection. My friends, Jesus loved God with his whole being so that we can love God with him and in him. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself so that we can love others with him and in him. When we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, surrendering our lives to him and are baptized, we are united to him. We die to our idolatry and self-made identity in Christ, and Christ gives us his identity and purpose as the beloved. We are beloved in Christ so we can love God and others in Christ. This means that everything that Jesus did and said is given to us and is slowly infused day by day into us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Everything wrong in us is slowly becoming right. God is reordering our loves with his love. We become little Christs, many new creations. And Jesus doesn't only show us the true life. He is the true life. And not only is he the true life, but he gives us the true life. He gives us his life. This is the good news proclaimed in the gospel for us today. Jesus Christ fulfilled and lived the good life, heals our idol-strewn life, and gives us his own life. Today, Jesus lovingly offers us the diagnosis of our disordered and prideful hearts, gives us the remedy by taking our disordered hearts and giving us himself. And I want to offer two ways that God is calling us to live Christ's life today. First, for some of us today, the spirit of Christ may be stirring aspects of our lives that are still disordered. Maybe it's an addiction or deep-seated resentment or anger. Perhaps you struggle with finding your own identity in what you own or do or, or what people think of you. Jesus is right here with you, and he offers you his life and identity. You are beloved, and nothing can add or subtract to this fact. He wants to order your love towards him. He wants to give you, he wants you to find your purpose and value only in him. He wants to give you his life so you can become free of your addiction and resentment. Will you receive him and his work of love today. And second, Jesus uses everything in our lives, our daily life circumstances, to make us more like him. And there are specific practices we, we do and we can do as we are united to Christ that create space for God to slowly reorder our desires, create space for the Holy Spirit to work in us. Very simple things that many of us do and can do more fully. Contemplating Jesus in the scriptures, for example, or daily and consistent prayer, orienting our lives to him through worship and receiving his life in Holy Eucharist, confessing and repenting of our sins to him and to another, praying for guidance to do his will only, 
and serving others in love and gratitude. All of these practices help us to realize Christ's presence at work in us, help us to sense his presence. And the Spirit works through them to reorder our desires towards God alone. Day by day, minute by minute, minute, we slowly become like Jesus as we spend time with him doing the things he does. Do you want true meaning, identity, and life? Jesus loves you and knows you more deeply than you know yourself. He is the meaning and identity we are all seeking. Let us all surrender and turn to Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father.